Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine, May 4th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. Kodiak is expecting its busiest cruise ship season this summer since the year before the pandemic when 30 cruises visited the island. The first ship this year docked just outside St. Paul Harbor Tuesday morning after sailing from Japan. Brian Benoit caught up with the first group of passengers to land in Kodiak after a week at sea. A trial has been ongoing in Ketchikan. It's an overcast and misty Tuesday morning, and the Wester Dam is already docked at Kodiak's Pier 2. The pier is about 900 feet long, but the ship is even bigger than that. Taxis and buses start to line up, while some drive by the pier just to gawk at the massive boat. It took a while before passengers finished their screenings with agents from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, but as the sun came up, the first passengers stepped off the ship, like David and Lily Freyberg. We just spent the last six months traveling around the world, and this is the last part of our trip, and it's one of the most beautiful parts. It's stunning here. Really beautiful. First time to Alaska. We love it. Love it. The couple is in their 50s. The Freybergs live in Florida most of the time, but they've been cruising from Europe through Eastern Asia. They just spent about seven days at sea coming from Yokohama, Japan, and this is their first time back in the United States this year. We're happiest here. Happy to be home. Happy to be home. But they weren't the only ones visiting the state for the first time. John Andrews is from the United Kingdom, and his wife, Els, is from Holland. This is your first time here in the state? In Alaska, absolutely. Yeah, first time. Els says they've watched shows about Alaska for years and jumped at the chance to see it firsthand. I've heard so much nice things. We've seen so many lovely pictures and videos. I've heard from so many people about how beautiful this area is in Alaska. So I can't wait. I'm just really excited. And I can't believe that we're so lucky to have the sun come out. The Westerdam has a capacity of nearly 2,000 people, and passengers estimated it to be mostly full when it docked in Kodiak. Toby Sullivan works for the Kodiak Maritime Museum. He's been a tour guide for about 10 years. We're headed into town. We're going to be talking about the harbor and all the commercial fishing boats. His first group had about 15 people. They heard about Kodiak's commercial fishing fleet, involvement in World War II, and the 1964 earthquake and tsunamis as well. There's a lot to cover, but Sullivan tries to keep tours to around an hour and a half. we got to keep moving. The tour ended just in front of the harbor master's office downtown in front of a memorial for folks lost at sea. Sullivan told stories of when he was a young fisherman raising his family here in Kodiak and how the Coast Guard has improved safety on the water. We used to say we would go over the event horizon in, in the Bering Sea in the 70s. You'd be gone for six months and nobody knew what we were doing. We used to say wild and free in the Bering Sea. <laughs> As for David and Lily Freyberg, while they've enjoyed their journey around the world, they're ready to head back home. But uh, we're looking forward to get back to our own bed. It's been six months of hotels. Passengers were expected to be back on board later that afternoon. The Westerdam has planned stops in Sitka and Ketchikan before the cruise ends in Seattle. The next cruise ships are expected in Kodiak next week. Two ships are set to arrive at the same time, the second and third of nearly two dozen expected this year. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benoit. A trial is underway to determine if posting a list of traditional values that include reverence for our creator in Ketchikan's public schools violates the First Amendment. On the first day of the trial on Tuesday, 
Witnesses on both sides testified about how the list has been used in local schools. In Ketchikan, Reagan Miller has the story from the court. A trial has been ongoing in Ketchikan to determine if displaying the 14 traditional tribal values developed by area culture leaders violates the First Amendment. But a third of Ketchikan students are Alaska Native. Stephen Langdon is a professor of cultural anthropology. He testified that the values all hinge around the idea of respect, central in Southeast Native culture. Well, what's critically important is that people have to uh, learn to live together and by understanding others, uh, it's much more successful to be able to uh, live together. The idea of reverence for our creator is what plaintiffs Justin Brees and Rebecca King say violates the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. They say that hanging the posters in school common areas without context or a lesson is endorsing the values. They also take issue with how the values are used in a behavior reward program at Ketchikan Charter School. Langdon said there isn't a religion or a specific deity worshipped by Klinkit Haida or Simshian people. He told several traditional stories from clans around the region to emphasize how the values are integral in the native way of life. He referenced stories about the character Raven, which is both creator and trickster, he described the stories as teaching tools. The ways in which they are used in teaching is to think about what Raven is doing, and it's not necessarily in a positive light. But Plaintiff Brees pointed out what he believed to be references to creation in Raven stories. Plaintiff Rebecca King spoke at length in court on Tuesday. On the final day, Brees highlighted a website from the Central Council of Klinkit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, which makes a reference to the creator that blessed indigenous people with the land. The site also has a passage that includes a description of the story Raven and the Creation Story and describes it as a story about, quote, how the Raven created the world. But Langdon said that he doesn't think the example was typical. Well, that's an unusual use of the word creation from the vantage point of Western thought. He said that the term doesn't really translate to English and Raven stories aren't creation stories. They're meant to teach lessons. Or who Raven... Uh, is supposed to um, be a part of. Rosita Worrell is the president of the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. She testified that the meaning of the word creator got misinterpreted in translation. In our culture, reverence for, you know, our creator, you know, doesn't refer to any god or any deity that we worship. That's absolutely not, you know, within our culture. Uh, within our culture, uh, creator could refer to multiple beings. Worrell said that the Southeast Native culture includes a belief that everything has a spirit, even a rock or a table. She said that the values need to be taught to promote healing from historical wrongs. They are necessary to openly living a traditional way of life. We want people to learn about our culture and our values. In closing arguments, Brees said that the district is teaching the spiritual beliefs of indigenous people. They are used as a guidepost for behaviors and beliefs required of a good student. Recognizing and rewarding students for following the 14 traditional tribal values shows the district is teaching, promoting, and endorsing those tribal values instead of teaching about them. John Patassin, the attorney for the school district, argued that not every reference to a creator violates the First Amendment. He said that the values are deeply ingrained in an indigenous way of life, which has a place in public schools. These values take on a meaning which are social and customary for these people, and it has taken on that meaning for the last 12,000 years. 
every feature of everyday life, be it subsistence, ceremonies, and every object that the experts and all the witnesses have shown you, these are the values by which they live. Wednesday marked the end of the civil trial in Ketchikan Superior Court. Judge Catherine Librand did not give an estimated timeline for her decision, but told the courtroom she didn't expect it to take long. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Firefighters from all over Alaska gathered in Sitka last month for a conference to learn from international and state fire and arson investigators. But in order to learn how to put out a fire or investigate its source, someone has to start one. This time, it was the arson investigators themselves. Catherine Rose reports from Sitka. A fire engine idles in the middle of a mostly empty gravel lot. It's parked next to what looks like a freshly constructed tiny home, except the sides of the house have been removed, revealing the contents of each petite room, just like a dollhouse. A recliner in one room, a television and a sofa in another, a pink dog bed on the floor. A small fire starts to crackle behind the recliner. The blaze grows, and soon the house is engulfed in flames. And the people standing around it, including quite a few firefighters, won't put it out right away. They want this house to burn. This is called a burn cell exercise. It's part of a recertification and training course for fire and arson investigators across the state of Alaska. They came to Sitka in mid-April for their annual meeting and to learn about all of the hottest topics in fire today. Yeah, and a lot of times when you watch the movies, you'll see the guy throw the cigarette down and the whole thing goes up in flames. That's not accurate. Interesting. Go, go figure. That's Special Agent Don Dodsworth. She's one of the leading federal arson investigators in the country. She oversees arson and explosives for much of the West Coast, including Alaska. Dodsworth and her colleagues are the specialists local fire departments can call in if they need help with a complex fire investigation. Throughout the week, they trained attendees on a variety of topics, including a thorough look at what can actually be ignited by a cigarette. When you're looking at the fire cause, you, as an investigator, want to formulate a bunch of different hypotheses as to how the fire could have started. So the students have been learning uh, what types of substrates the cigarettes can actually ignite versus not, because there's a lot of myths out there, especially in the movies. Dodsworth has a Ph.D. in forensic science, but she started her journey in a fire hall, like most of the training participants. I was a firefighter in New Jersey for 10 years. I did 10 years of structural firefighting and then 15 years of wildland firefighting. Mm -hmm. And while I was going to college for my undergraduate degree, I was an intern for ATF in New Jersey. I actually was like, this is the best of both worlds. She comes to conferences like this one to provide guidance and training, but also to meet the people she could be working with in the event of an emergency in the region. I mean, these guys really drive everything that we do. As a fire investigator, it's critical for me not only to go out and meet my state and locals, because I... I don't want to meet them for the first time at the scene of a tragedy. The firefighters aren't just learning how to stop fires. They're learning how to pick up on subtle details after a fire has occurred to determine the cause. That's what the burn cell exercise was all about, setting the scene for investigative training. 
They had to start with a building that was as realistic as possible. Sitka Fire Chief Craig Warren says Dodsworth's team sent them the plans for the structure, and the assistant fire chief spent two weeks building it. Then they collected furniture donations from the community. We try to make the compartment or the the room look like uh, a functional room in your house with similar materials. Uh, If we were using couches from like 1970, we wouldn't have the burning that we have nowadays because we don't we didn't have the plastics back then. We house fires didn't go up near as fast as they do now. The instructors then set each cell on fire separately using a different method for each one, like a cigarette in a waste paper basket or a Molotov cocktail. They do this all the time and they're still like kids. The work they do is far from easy, and it often goes hand-in-hand with tragedy. But tonight, at the Granite Creek Pit, the mood is lighthearted. The investigators laugh and revel a bit in the process of lighting each flame and the firefighting that's about to happen in a safe, contained environment. As the fire intensifies, cell phone cameras come out. One firefighter smiles and takes a selfie. After a few minutes of burning, firefighters douse the blaze and a black cloud billows forth out of the cell. Their colleagues cheer them on. Days later in the training, fire investigators will return to the site of the burn cell to examine the charred rooms and try to determine whether the fires were started by a piece of paper stuffed inside a toaster or a sparking laptop battery but not likely a cigarette tossed in a tub of gasoline. That only works in the movies. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. A Metlakatla woman is in custody on murder charges after police say she killed her three-year-old son and her adult brother by driving into them after an alcohol-fueled party. 27-year-old Alicia Henderson faces seven counts, including second-degree murder and manslaughter. She was arrested on Tuesday on a warrant in Metlakatla, where she had been visiting from her current home in Palmer. The charges stem from an April 22nd party where local police say Henderson was drinking with several others. Her young son, the boy's father, and other adult relatives were also there. Around 1.30 a.m., the boy, his father, and Henderson's brother were reportedly walking home from the party when Henderson allegedly drove a white Nissan Pathfinder SUV into three of them. Police say say surveillance videos from a nearby school shows the Pathfinder turning its lights off and accelerating before impact. Henderson's brother, 24-year-old James Henderson, was taken to a local clinic and pronounced dead. The boy died the following evening after he was medevaced to Anchorage for his injuries. The boy's father was also wounded but survived. Henderson initially denied being behind the wheel but later admitted to thinking she had hit a car instead, according to a recorded phone call monitored by Alaska State Troopers. Henderson was convicted of a DUI in March of last year. About a decade ago, she was convicted of a misdemeanor assault charge. Henderson's bail has been set at $250,000. Her first court appearance was scheduled for 1 p.m. on Wednesday. An attorney for Henderson has not yet been assigned.
Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert, and I report for KFSK.